please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. This morning is the sixth sermon in a series in this epistle that we're going through this year. And um, as I mentioned last week, you can access the scriptures however you like. My strong preference, you'd bring a Bible of your own to church that you can write in. We have supplied Bibles, a number of them in the pews, and you're welcome to use those as well. This morning's scripture portion is verses 3 through 6 of 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read the scripture and then ask God to bless the preaching and explanation of his word. Here it is, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, the inerrant and infallible word of God. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for this portion of it. We pray now that the words of my mouth as the preacher and the thoughts and reflections, questions, on each one of our hearts as hearers would be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Think of your best class in school ever. If you're still very young, if you're third or fourth or fifth grade, I, I know you haven't had very many classes, but a lot of you, based on the look of you, have been in school for a while. Now think when it came, in that favorite class, think of when it came to taking the test. Were you excited on that occasion? Strange as it might sound to new students or young students, in your favorite class, the test is actually a pleasure. It's the last moment in which you get to show often a beloved teacher, someone that you've really connected well with, you get to show this teacher how proud he or she should be of you. There's that parental, beautiful parental relationship in, in a good teacher-student situation. But it's, in, in a good class, it's also your last chance to learn something. Now, because it's a good class, you also know that you're going to continue learning, whether it's the history of French Impressionism or of the English Civil War or calculus or whatever the thing may be, you're, you're going to, you've fallen in love with the subject, you're going you're gonna to be a student for the rest of your life. That's because in such a class, you're converted to be a lifelong learner. So it is with the Christian faith. But unfortunately, we don't treat our faith. Many of us struggle with treating the faith as our favorite class in school. And sometimes this includes particularly young children, covenant children, a church service. Sometimes kids struggle with making this the best day of their week. And parents, you need to focus on that and helping make Sunday special for your children, as an aside. 
The thought of being a lifelong student of Jesus and of the Christian faith for some of us hasn't even entered our minds. But that's what it means to be a disciple. Unfortunately, though, we've bought into the scam that you can take salvation, stick it in your back pocket, and then kindly get on with your life as it was. This is a gross exaggeration or distortion of what the faith is really about. After all, when you really learn about God, how could you go on with the rest of your life in the same way? When you begin to discover that my entire life is lived in the light of a loving, powerful, creative, holy, and, and compassionate God, nothing can be the same. When you learn that being a Christian, being a follower of Christ, means that you share life not only with Jesus, but with the Father and the Spirit, the triune God. It's a community of life between the creator of all that there is and of his chosen people. Why would we want to go back to the, things, the way things were before? I don't. I remember those days of being in darkness and treating religion like a transaction and a have to and thinking the Bible was just a big book written a long time ago that was my parents' concern and not mine. But once I discovered that it was a living, breathing relationship with a being, a tri-personal being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, my life was never the same. So a test in this sort of relationship would be exhilarating, wouldn't it? Unless it's merely a transaction, because there are poor students in every class, the test could be a time of great stress or anxiety. So in today's passage, it sort of depends on where you are. If you're already in a vital fellowship relationship with God, if, if you've discovered that God is the purpose of life and the great heartbeat of the choices that you make on a day-to-day -day basis, this morning's passage and the tests that it contains are a real inspiration. Uh, they're a kind of uh, encouragement to keep growing and keep flowing with the Lord. But if you're not there yet, or you're just getting there, this morning's message could be stressful for you. You might even be tempted to tune me out, like some of us did with teachers we didn't like. But before you do this, since we're talking about the good news of the gospel, if you're new to this, what you hear this morning might be the best news you've ever heard. It might be a paradigm changer where you finally, the, the penny drops, as the saying goes, and you finally begin to understand that God isn't just after me or wanting things from me. He's given himself to me. You might learn how to move into a real relationship with God, the one that he intends in the first place. So my title is Knowing God. That's the title of the sermon this morning. And I have my work cut out for me. This is a huge topic. But as we think about knowing God, I thought about maybe we're moving around a giant mountain and looking at it from different perspectives, or maybe we want to think of it in terms of three questions. Why do you need to know God? How do you know that you know God? And how can you grow in what you know? Why do you need to know? 
How do you know that you know? And how can you grow in what you know? So the first question is the importance of knowing God, which is why you need to know God. And my answer to this is twofold. Number one, this book, the Bible, is all about knowing God. From Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, every one of them in different ways has as its aim or objective of helping you to know God. And we're going to look at just a handful of verses in Exodus. That's the second book of the Bible. So let's turn there together. Exodus. We'll start in Exodus chapter 6. Knowing God is more important than anything else, and the theme of the Bible is knowing God, and we're seeing several of these themes, if you will, show up in this book of Exodus. Exodus 6, verse 7 says this, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. Moses is being told that because of what God is going to do, the salvation, the redemption that God is going to effect, he's going to rescue his people from slavery, then they're going to know that he's God. This is a crucial lesson about knowing God. Knowing God means being in a relationship with him, a love relationship with him that he initiates to bring you out of your troubles, to lift burdens off of you, and to bring freedom into your life. Now, that's definitely not a transactional relationship. This is, a, this is an unbelievable offer if it's true. Knowing God means that God has done things for me, not because I deserve them, but because he loves me, he cares for me. That's what it means to know God. And then if we turn a few pages over to Exodus 16... I made a list of 50 of these, by the way, so I'm just giving you a couple, all right? It was one of those nights this week where I couldn't sleep, and I was thinking about the message, and it must have been one in the morning, and I just started listing all the verses in the Bible that referenced knowing God on my phone in bed. Maybe not healthy, but it was awesome. It was awesome. So here's another one, Exodus 16, verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said, verse 3, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So knowing God means that you have to grow and adapt to new circumstances. The fresh salvation, the exhilaration of deliverance, in this case, has sort of begun to dull a little bit. And now we're, you know, we're, we're well on our way on this cross-country trip, and kids are getting bored in the back seat. Johnny is punching little Jimmy. Susie's complaining. Everybody's getting sick of Sammy's singing. 
you know, and this is sort of the thing, except why did you, why did you save us? It was better in Egypt. All of a sudden, we forgot how hard it was with the burdens, and all we remember is the food. But I'm saying knowing God means that you're growing and adapting to new circumstances. Knowing God isn't something that stays static. You, you, when you get saved, when you discover the love of God that we just heard about in Exodus 6, that God is lifting burdens off of your back, that's exhilarating. But then when you start walking with the Lord, walking in the knowledge of God, things can get difficult. And sometimes people will get into the faith kind of through a salesman technique. Ah, oh, it's awesome. You're going to be blessed in every way. And they forget to mention the cross and the hardships that can come. You need to grow and develop in your knowledge of God. It's, it's a knowledge that's living. It has to adapt to new circumstances and situations. And by the way, often those are difficult. Often those are difficult circumstances. Let's flip over to Exodus 31, verse 3. This is the knowledge of God that belongs to the artist and the craftsman. I love this verse. They're building the tabernacle, which is the mobile temple. It's the movable place where God met with his people until the temple was built by by David and his son Solomon. The tabernacle is quite detailed in its its building and its construction. And Exodus 31 says, I have, uh, verse 2, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. Knowing God means your work is going to look different. Now, you may not see, your, maybe you're not a jeweler, and maybe you're not someone who hammers metal, a silversmith or a goldsmith. Maybe you don't see your exact work in this list, but that's not the point. The point is, whatever you do with your hands to earn a living, your work is going to look different. Your shop is going to look different. Because you've been filled with the Spirit of God to make things for the glory of God, to do things, to create things, to think about things, to write things, to explain things, whatever your vocation is. See, knowing God is intended to impact every category of our lives. It's not just a Sunday thing, it's a Monday through Saturday thing. I mentioned last week that the point of the Sunday sermon is to give a good impulse or some momentum to your your day-to-day labors. So you should expect from me some practical application in the stuff that you deal with on a day-to-day basis. Long work days, dealing with the commute, dealing with colleagues, customers, bosses, figuring out problems, solving riddles. These are things that God cares about, and knowing God impacts the way that you do your work. And it makes it special. It makes it special in some way. Well, there's many more I could, I could cite um, we're not going to look these up. Isaiah forty twenty eight. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And the point of this is you need to know who God is because in Isaiah's context, read it this afternoon, Isaiah 40, 
knowing God affects us emotionally. We're not going to be anxious. We're not going to be worried or fearful when uncertain times come. And knowing God, Psalm 48, verse 3, within her citadels, God has made himself known. Knowing God means you're committed to the church, to the institution of the church, not just to your Bible or to a general sense of prayer throughout the week. You're going to make Sunday service a priority because in the citadels of Zion, which is the New Testament church, God makes himself known. So the emphasis in Mercy Hill on committing to a local church, being a regular attender, it's not that we think we're that great, but God thinks we're great. Like God has put his, his seal of approval on his church, and this is one of them. There are many other churches. Commit to one of them. Be, be needed, be known there, and make it, make it a point to learn and grow in the context of your local church. And then obviously, John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time, but Jesus Christ has made him known. How do we know God? We know God through Jesus Christ. And that's good because God is an intimidating being. He's, he's a frightening, terrifying being, and God has revealed himself. He's explained himself through the person of his son. When we see Jesus, we know God. Philip says, Show us the Father, and it's going to be good enough for us in John 14. And I like this because my name's Philip. And Philip thinks he's being quite helpful, and I honestly think I'm being helpful most of the time. So I can relate to Philip, the disciple, and Philip says, let let me take care of this, guys. Jesus, here's all we need. Just show us the Father, and we'll be good. And Jesus goes, Philip... Have I been with you this long, and you haven't figured it out yet? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Philip's going, oh, that's a game changer. He was humbled and shocked at the same time. So yes, knowing God means knowing Jesus Christ. And it is the main thing from a biblical standpoint. Our catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We could take that word glory out and put in no And it would work the same. Man's chief end is to know God. It's why you have breath in your lungs, is that you would be known by God and that you would know God. Jesus puts it this way, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, seeing God, glorifying God, knowing God, the highest purpose for mankind. And it answers our question, why knowing God is so important. But I want to give one more answer before I move on to the second point. Why should we know God? Why is knowing God important? Here I'm going to quote a favorite author, a famous literary scholar, C.S. Lewis. He puts it this way, I believe in God as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, because by it I see everything else. Why is knowing God so important? Because through God, through your knowledge of God, everything else looks different. Calvin calls this spectacles. Some teachers call it a biblical worldview. And at the center of a biblical worldview is the heartbeat of the living God. God is the means by which he's the fact with the capital F, the one fact of our existence. And all other little facts, two plus two, Gravity, theory of relativity, 
you name it, every other fact is interpreted in light of this fact. That's why the old universities would say, with the theology department, was the center of the university in olden days. Now it's, on the, it's in an annex in a trailer in the, back, in the backyard. So the knowledge of God is, is a lens or the means by which we understand all other reality. First point then, the importance of knowing God, why you need to know. The second question is this, how do you know that you know God? This is an important question. Let's take a look at our text in 1 John. Verse 3 says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The same idea is repeated in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. That's phrased negatively. And then it comes up again in verse 5. John rephrases, but whoever keeps his word, so we go from commandments to word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So we introduce the idea of love, the love of God. Three times, keep his commandments, keep his commandments, obeying the word of God. So how do you know if you know God? The answer is that you obey his commandments. What commandments is it that John wants us to keep? Well, let's, let's do a little review here. There are ten of them. You know them? You shall have only one God. No other gods before me. That's number one. That's who we worship. You shall not make any graven images of this one God. That's how we worship. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's what we do in worship, not just on Sundays, but throughout our days, because you're a baptized follower of Christ. You bear his name to every place that you go, so don't take his name in vain. It isn't just the, the cussing commandment. It's the living commandment. Number four, I mentioned this already, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. This is the church commandment. Five, honor your father and your mother. Honor your parents. It's the only commandment with the promise. Six, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. And you shall not covet. So if your life is characterized by these commands, you know God. That's what John is saying. If you know God... Keep his commandments. If you keep his commandments, you know God. But then he adds, he changes commandments into word. Look at um, verse 5. Whoever keeps his word. To keep something, by the way, is to count it as very precious. So we go from commandments, which I'm taking as somewhat specific. I listed 10 of them. Not 11 and not 9, but 10. He's given us a list. But then the word, keeping the word of God is more general. It's, a, it's an attitude, I guess, of generally being committed to living life for the glory of God. In the details, enjoying God. My whole life is about God. It doesn't mean that I'm reading my Bible 24-7. It just means that in all the many things that I'm doing, whether I'm going to the movies or reading a book or eating breakfast or, you know, 
playing soccer or whatever I'm doing, having fun, I'm weeping, I'm celebrating, I'm thinking, I'm studying, whatever it is, I'm keeping his word. And I think that general notion is partly why Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments into two. Do you remember what they are? Love God and love neighbor. Well, that's a great, that's a great way to know God, is to love him and to love my neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? Well, certainly the person sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you, the person that's close to you in this moment, the person who's on either side of you in your house or your apartment, if you're in a dorm, your sweet mate or the, the person that lives across the hall, that's your neighbor. If you're married, your spouse is probably your most important neighbor. Love God and love my neighbor. We're going to be learning more about loving your neighbor in next week and the coming weeks. But then there's another phrase about keeping the commandments. Look at verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, that is Jesus, walks. You see, keeping the commandments or keeping his word also means, and this is worth writing down, imitating Christ. I'm going to imitate Christ. What did, what did Jesus do? He was friends with sinners. He didn't boast. He, he followed the Father's timetable. He's like, not yet. The Father isn't ready yet. We're going to do it in God's time. He prayed by himself, sometimes all night. He had friends that he trusted. He needed them. He relied on them. He taught them. He, he, was an, he, he earned an honest wage. He's a blue-collar worker. I love that Jesus was a carpenter or a stonemason or both. He showed up to work every single day and worked hard. Uh, in my mind's eye, Jesus had calluses on his hands. So he was not a stranger to work. He honored his parents. I mean, the son of God, his parents sinned against him. Kids, he never sinned against them. The one child who never sinned against his parents. He sacrificed much, didn't he? In a crowd, he would often notice the one that was needy. And he paid attention to that person. Even when his disciples were like, come on, Jesus, we got business to do. We got ministry to do. He's like, no, slow down. There's this woman. There's this man. They need me. Leave the master alone. He's busy. Don't bring those kids to him. This is what Jesus did. Praise God for the example of Christ. Imitating Christ is what we're called to do. And John, interestingly, in verse 6, connects abiding, this word abiding, which we're going to come to in a minute, with walking. There's something about imitating Christ that is something like resting. As, as hard as it may be, people talk about flow state, right, where you're and I, I played tennis, and I was a runner, and, and I work in the yard. And I experience it in all of those contexts. When you're really good, when you get really good at something, you hit a certain level. Musicians, it's the same thing. At a point, you forget to move your fingers. They're just kind of moving if you're playing a guitar or the piano. And I think there's something about resting in Christ, abiding in Christ, and walking as Jesus walked that seems somewhat effortless takes practice. 
definitely takes practice. So as you think about applying the second crucial truth, obedience, I think we need to pause for a minute. The church struggles with a hypocrisy issue. We have an image problem. Because this is right here in black and white. We're supposed to walk like Jesus walked, but so many of us don't. In some context, we consistently don't. And Jesus confronted the Pharisees in his day by saying, you preach, but you do not practice. We get a a saying that says, practice what you preach from Matthew chapter 23, verse 3. You can see it in a saying someone has coined. It might have been Oz Guinness. I'm not sure. It's called fat Christians, and I'm not talking about your BMI here. Your head is too big for your body is what I mean. You know a lot, but you're not doing with your body, what you know. Another pastor I know says we're, we're, we ran past in our discipleship, our learning has far exceeded our doing. And this pastor went on to say, stop learning so much and start doing more so that these are more in balance. Don't go to another class. Start living out what you've actually learned. It's challenging. I used to teach science, and in an ecosystem, the things that are consumed turns into goods that are produced so that the system is balanced. So, for example, plants consume carbon dioxide, and they produce oxygen. So if you're a plant, you're consuming things, you're consuming things, you're consuming things. What are you producing? See, John very much here is in line with James and Peter when he's talking about this. It's faith without works is dead. It's, you're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You're consuming your head. It's going to blow up. There's so many th- things in that head of yours and mine. This is a big problem when dealing with the topic of knowing God. You know, I've actually bought things from the store, brought them home, and they've stayed in the wrapper on the counter for weeks. Apparently, I thought I needed it, especially true in my garage, by the way. At one point, I know I needed it, and it's just sitting there. And when it's like a chemical that you can't just throw away, I mean, I don't want to pollute the environment, so it just kind of sits there. And we're doing that every time we come to church, we're... We're consuming something, we're getting a new package, and then you stick it in the back seat of the car, you're driving home, and it stays there till next Sunday. It's such an important point that, that John says that you are a liar if you say you, keep, you say you know God and you don't keep his commandments. Now, I want to... I wanna be, be nice here. I'm, I'm trying to be nice to you. Um, not all of you are liars because you're trying to trick people. I want people to see that I'm awesome. I'm going to lie about my faith. I'm going to go to church, and they're all going to think I'm godly and holy, and then I'm going to go run with the devil from Monday through Saturday. That's not how most of you live. Now, there may be an area of your life where you're doing that, but I'm going to talk to, generally speaking, our lying and deceiving is, is, is actually not the main problem. There's something beneath it. Tim Keller, it's not original with him. He called it the sin beneath the sin. 
The reason you say you know God and don't keep his commandments, that's the sin. That's lying. But there's a reason beneath it, and that's what I'm trying to encourage you to think about right now. Why are you lying about this? Why are you saying that I know God but don't keep his commandments? What's, what's driving that, that hypocrisy in your life? There may be a number of good, valid reasons that, that need to be talked about and explored. See, growing in your knowledge of God allows the light of the Lord to shine not just on your hypocrisy, which is a surface-level issue. By the way, this is very important in marriage because Christian marriages are not exempt from fighting, and we keep fighting. You keep butting heads or, or knocking heads over the same issues as a married couple in part because there are these deeper issues that are motivating you to act in a selfish way, even though you say, I don't want to act in a selfish way. So what are those issues? The high calling of following God, obeying God, hearing God's word, putting it into practice requires you to think deeply about this. And and as encouragement to you, the reason we think deeply about it is because God has shown you his love in Christ. That's, that's, where you, that's where all the power is. And so the reason you read your Bibles on a daily basis and you come to church on a weekly basis and the reason that you have devotions as a couple, like Polly and I did last night, honey, would you like to have devotions? I looked at her. I didn't say no. It was good. That was good for me. That was a big step for me. The reason we do this is because it keeps us in the presence of the God who loves us, shines the light of his love in our lives, in that first layer of hypocrisy, and, and it will penetrate down more deeply into the deeper parts of our hearts where we really need to experience true personal change. That's why verses 3 through 6 follow verses 1 and 2. So knowing God is what we're learning about this morning. It's very important. It's why you need to know God. And how do you know if you know God? It's by keeping his word. It's by keeping his commandments. That's how you know what you know. And the third crucial truth is growing in what you know. This is the process of knowing God. So how do we grow in what we know? Verse 3, if you look at it, says, By this we know that we have come to know him. So here a little grammar is helpful. Have come to know him means at one point in my life I didn't know him in the past. Then at some point in the past, I came to know him. And I still know him today. So have come to know him is a way of saying something was true in the past and continues to be true today. It's describing a process. And we know this because no one can say that he or she has no sin. That's 1 John 1, 6 through 10. We've already covered that. So I came to know him Sinner saved by grace, for me, 1988, in college, discovered Jesus for the first time in a remarkable way. So I came to know him, but I still know him. But there's still things that I need to know about him in the future. So it's a process that John's use of the verb have come to know him suggests that it's a process. And the same thing is true in verse 4. Whoever says, I have known him. It's the same verb there, actually. The ESV doesn't bring it out. 
if you say you, you have known him, you knew him in the past and you still know him in the present, you need to keep his commandments. You need to keep holding on. And, and it comes out in this word abide as well in verse 6. And with apologies to Jeff Bridges, this is the abiding that counts. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. Abide means, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, resting in him, growing in him, learning about him, being open to God exposing new areas of commandment keeping. Jesus uses the word abide in the context of ripening fruit in John 14 and in John 15. Think of the fruit. Spring is coming, I hope, pretty soon. We're starting to see little shoots of green in our, in our beds where the bulbs are planted, and soon we'll see those, those tight clusters at the end of the branches of the tree, which will break open into blossoms. And those blossoms will produce lovely fruit in no time at all. Which means we have to wait. I know it's cold and gray. We have to wait, pray, and be patient. And so persevering becomes an important aspect of abiding. You have to keep waiting, keep praying, keep repenting. The path of knowing God is, is hard. Jesus says it takes endurance. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And children especially need to be helped with this, parents. You need to help your kids see how hard it is. But not in a negative way, in a way that says, Honey, this is hard. We're going to make it together. You model for them that endurance. So moms and dads really have a huge responsibility of showing the, the, the attractiveness of the faith by the way they handle, by the way you handle crises in your lives. You need to be that steady presence in your kids' lives. Speaking of steady and persevering, I was thinking this week of the people that have left Mercy Hill. And there have been many over the years that have left our church, some for perfectly wonderful reasons. I think most recently of, of Joe Gamboa and his wife Amanda, who now are in Houston. We celebrated and, and cried a little with, with their moving away. Other people have left for less than ideal reasons. I mean, clearly it's not the preaching. That's definitely not why they left. It's you guys. But as people leave, our hope is that even though this wasn't the church for them, that they found a place, what? Where they could grow in their knowledge of God. Isn't that our hope? Not that this is the only church but that we do our part in the larger body of Christ to help people know God. And this won't be a church for everyone. We, this is a serious church. There's no doubt about it. We, we mean what we say. And for some people, that's hard. For some people, it, isn't, it doesn't hit them at the right point in their walk for whatever reason. Surely there have been conflicts that it could have been resolved in different ways. Had we known God better? Had I been a better Christian? Had I been closer to the Lord? Had you all been better friends to certain individuals? But the point is that we're growing. This is my point. We're abiding. And in many, not in every case, but in many cases, those who have left have found homes of faith in other churches that we can celebrate. Well, as I close, I want to mention another thing that I learned when I was a science teacher in college. I took a botany class, and there was a book. 
this book was about eight inches thick. Literally, it was bigger than my hand. It was called Gray's Botany. And in this book, you could identify any flower, just about any flower in North America. And it started with a question with two answers, yes or no. And it's called a dichotomous key. And by answering these questions, you could go all the way down and get the genus and species in Latin of every flower in North America. It was awesome. It took me hours to learn how to use this book. And we had a lab for this class, and the whole lab was to identify, it was, it was a four-hour lab. You had to identify with Gray's Botany three flowers. You had four hours to do it. It's not an easy task. I was reminded of this because my daughter, uh, my youngest child, is a nursing student, and she's currently learning all the bones of the human body. Now, there are a number of bones. It's in the hundreds. But Stasi isn't just learning the bones. She's actually learning the shapes of the bones. Because as it turns out, the different bones in the body have places on them, a, a depression, a, a bump, a round part, a flat part, that are important, medically speaking. You need to know not just the names of the bones, but the names of the shapes on the bones. That's a lot to know. In Psalm 139, we find out that God knows us, each and every one of us. And he doesn't need a dichotomous key. Like, he doesn't take four hours to finally get down to your name. He knows you from the mother's womb. From, from the time that your mother conceived you, he knew you. He knew all the days that you were going to live. He knows how you're made. He knows your body. He knows where you're, where you're weak. He knows if you have health issues. He knows the frailty of your mind. He knows your experiences. All of it. He knows it all. And he has invited you to get to know him. He knows you. You need to know him. Knowing God is the absolute best thing you can ever do in your life. It is the thing that we will spend the rest of our mortal days either running from or embracing. And in eternity, you will finally know as you were known. And that's something to look forward to. So in the meantime, let's recommit to repenting of breaking his commandments. Repenting. And don't just repent on the surface. Say lust, pornography, anger, temper, whatever your thing is. Go down a level. Why did you commit that sin? What was going on in your heart and your mind at that moment? What was the trigger that led you to break your promise to the Lord and to others? I know you're not proud of it. Open your heart to it because God wants you to grow in your knowledge of him. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for knowing us so well, inviting us to know you. The knowledge of the almighty, infinite God is the work of a lifetime, truly of an eternity. And we have a thimbleful, some even less. But we can grow in what we, what we have, and we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to grow in the knowledge of God and the way that we live and treat one another especially. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro.
off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.